Thursday, October 4th. Welcome to Market Fuller. I'm Chris Allen. Joining me in studio today from Motley Fool Pro, Brian Hinman, and from Motley Fool Inside Value, Uncle Joe Mager. Guys, good to see you. Hey, Chris. Howdy. Uh, you know what? I'm just going to start with the Uncle Joe Maker because because uh, we got a question on Twitter. You can follow us on Twitter. It's just at Market Foolery, and we got a question. I think it was last week when you were out of town, and it was uh, it was a guy who's a regular listener saying, "What what's with the Uncle Joe? What what is the backstory on Uncle Joe Maker? Do do you want to share this, or would you like me to? I have no nephews or nieces. <laughs> it's not because Joe's actually an uncle. It was an episode where uh, we were in the studio. Joe was in here. Bill Mann was in here. Who else was in here? Tim Hansen? Tim, yeah. I think. Yeah, and and Joe spent a few quiet minutes in the middle of the podcast sort of with his iPad stewing over some charts that had to do with Walmart or Amazon or something like that and basically kind of had an angry or rather a grumpy uncle moment. And, uh, and As Bill said. As Bill said, yeah. So it just it just kind of stuck from there. So that's where the Uncle Joe comes from. Uh, today we will uh, dip into the full mailbag. But My wife hates that, by the way. <laughs> Hates it. She'll tolerate Uncle, but she does not like the angry part. That's why we just go with Uncle Joe. Uh, we're going to spend the bulk of our time today talking about something that you guys did earlier this week, and that is you were both up in New York at the Value Investing Congress, and this is, I mean, this is a big deal investment. Con- I mean, let's be clear: there are investment conferences pretty much every week of the year, but this is, in terms of value investing, this is is. If not the one to go to, it's certainly in in the top tier. Yeah, I mean, it moves markets and people get on planes to get there. Yeah. Um, so I, I want to just start. I, we're going to go specifically to a couple of presentations that were made, but I want to start with just sort of general impressions. And, and Brian, I'll just start with you. Um, you're there for a couple of days. You're seeing all these presentations. Um, what really stuck out to you in terms of great presentations or you know individuals who were really impressive? We've talked before about different investors that we follow that you guys look to. Um, what did you see and, and who did you listen to? Yeah, so the one that sticks out in my mind is uh, Jeff Ubbin of Value Act Capital. And uh, many of our listeners are not going to know about Value Act, but they're activist investors. It's a, really a small shop. Uh, they run a fairly concentrated portfolio of you know, sort of 12 to 20 names at any one given point in time. And uh, Jeff started off his presentation by saying, hey, we run a small portfolio. We can't really afford to be wrong all that often. He then proceeded to uh, detail the four types of mistakes that he and his uh, firm have made over you know over the years. This was actually a presentation that they gave to their their firm's limited partner, so the investors in the firm. So he was basically saying, "Hey, look, we're really good at this, but we still screw up from time to time. Here's how we screw up from time to time. Here's what we've learned from that, uh, and here's how that plays out in our portfolio today." And what's really interesting is, even though he's admitting we can't afford to screw up, but we do. We've learned from it and changed things. There was still one holding in their portfolio that he admits uh, has a, you know, has some likelihood greater than zero uh, of being another mistake. Uh, and the only reason that they're comfortable with it is because they sit on the board. So I think it's reassuring for us individual investors out there to uh, to hear pros who are, you know, extremely good at what they do, highly respected, very successful, saying. We screw up, too. The important thing is that we learn from Well, it. the moral of the story is you should always be on the board of directors <laughs> of the companies you invest in. What's, uh, what was the number one mistake, uh, and what did they learn from it? 
Uh, so, so I'll give you all four that he said. He said valuation, complexity, governance, uh, and leverage. Um, and I think the one that stuck in my mind most was complexity. Uh, he basically said, um, if you can't identify the, the few important drivers of a business early on, just say that it's too hard and move on to something else. Nice. That is good advice. Uh, Joe, I'm interested what stuck out for you, but all, uh, just sort of stepping back, this this conference takes place at a time where we're in, you know, we're at like year four of a bull run that the market has had. Was there any addressing by anyone of like, you know what, it's it's getting harder to be a value investor because the market's at a four-year high? Yeah, that's a great point. To me, the most striking thing wasn't so much what was said, but what was left unsaid. And that was related to the lack of good opportunities or how people have had to work a little bit harder to find them. Uh, this is like my fourth value investing Congress. Um, so I've kind of seen all these guys pitch a few times now. And it's interesting to see the, the tone and the mood every year. And last year, there was a lot of talk about stocks being cheap. And it was a common refrain from all the speakers. There was a lot of optimism that stocks collectively could do something like 25, 30% returns up to a fair value. And oddly enough, the market's up by about that amount over the last year. Um, just goes to show that you should be buying when everyone is pessimistic. And at the time, people were very pessimistic. Uh, this time around, there weren't too many excited cases for stocks at large. I think Alex Ropers, who I think is wicked smart from Atlantic uh, Investment Management, was basically the only guy who came out and said, I still think stocks are a very good place to be over the next few years. I tend to agree with that. I don't think they're nearly as cheap as they were a year ago. But yeah, that was definitely something that kind of jumped off the page at me. Were there any surprises? Was there anything that made either one of you rethink your approach or rethink your investment analysis? Or or was there, because the room is filled with value investors, was there, um, I guess, uh, for lack of a better word, not a lot of outlier thinking going on? Well, even within the value investing community, there's a lot of disagreement, right? So, a lot of people in there probably laughed when, at least to themselves, when Whitney Tilson was pitching Netflix. Um, it's a stock that a lot of value guys really hate. So there's obviously he was pitching it in a in a bullish way. In a, in a bullish, bullish case, way, yeah. yeah. Whitney quite famously was short Netflix. It didn't really work out for him, and he covered near the top. And then he bought back in after the stock had been slammed, but. Long story short, he's managed to lose money on Netflix in two different directions. That's uh, tough that, to do. It's tough to do. Um, yeah, and you know, there's disagreement around that. And honestly, you know, the elements uh, that came up in the the talk that Brian was talking about just now of avoiding complexity, avoiding leverage, um, focusing on good corporate governance. Honestly, I mean, these are all great fundamental tenets that I think bullish investors should anchor on over the long haul. That said, I. There's something close to a bubble around each of those, in my opinion, and companies that lack that are just selling at fire sale prices. So, I mean, Goldman Sachs basically being the, the poster boy of that, where it fails on each one of these checks. And I completely get what people are saying about all those concerns, but at the same time, it's like, look, you get a century-old franchise that's selling at a discount to tangible book value, and it's still making money. That sounds pretty attractive to me as a value guy, but most of the guys in the room would probably say, nah, it's too complex, leverage, blah. Uh, last year, uh, last fall, I should say, 
uh, one of the big stories coming out of the Value Investing Congress was David Einhorn and his 110-page PowerPoint presentation on Green Mountain Coffee Roasters. And it why, was robust. It was robust, <laughs> and, uh, and why he was short. Um, and I actually clicked through all 110 pages, and it was, it was a very compelling case that he made, I thought. So going into this one, there were a lot of people who were looking at this Congress uh, this time around, specifically at Einhorn, basically saying, what's Einhorn going to present a short case for this time around? And it was Chipotle. Um, first of all, were you guys surprised? Was there was there a was there an unveiling of some sort when when Einhorn got up there, or or was there a buzz that you knew it was going to be Chipotle? And they drop burritos on everyone. <laughs> <laughs> burritos rain from the sky. Chris, it's really it's really pretty crazy to see so many people wearing you know thousand dollar suits openly salivating uh, <laughs> as you know one guy approaches the stage. Uh, no, there was no warning as to what this was going to be. If there was some scuttlebutt about uh, what the name was was going to be, uh, it was something other than Chipotle, actually. There were people who were gossiping behind us who had actually mentioned that it might be Google. Uh, Which, of course, gave me a heart attack. <laughs> <laughs> uh, so, so, no. Uh, and, he, uh, and Einhorn led into his presentation with, you know, sort of a, a word of caution and then some updates on uh, – uh, and other investment ideas before he sort of unveiled Chipotle. Um, but, man, those people get excited. Um, Joe, among his, uh, and you, you obviously were in the room for it, but uh, among the sort of highlights of his short case against Chipotle, he says there's a low barrier to entry. Uh, the costs are going higher for Chipotle, not just in terms of uh, you know the proteins and the grains that they use, but in terms of healthcare costs. Uh, and uh, he said there's a risk of them losing frequent customers, in part, and uh, certainly a bunch of people in the media have latched onto this, in part because of Taco Bell, and, and specifically Taco Bell's new Cantina Bell um, concept that they're doing, which is getting mostly positive reviews. Again, you're in the room for it. What was your take on, on his short case? I wasn't blown away by it. I think the Green Mountain one is better and I'll talk about that in a sec, but specific to the Chipotle one, you know, I'm not a big fan of shorting on valuation because companies that tend to beat expectations tend to keep beating them, and that can get ugly sometimes. And honestly, if a stock can get irrationally priced at X level, there's usually not much of a reason it can't go to X plus one. And so I'm not a big fan of that. And in terms of fundamentals here, you know, I get all his points, and he did a lot of research into how... Uh, Taco Bell consumers are actually a lot more crossed over with Chipotle consumers than you might conventionally think. And I think there's something to that, and I applaud the extra layer of research. You know, that said, it wasn't anything near like a smoking gun kind of argument to me that I'd seen in other cases from him where, you know, you look at Green Mountain, I thought he laid out an extremely compelling case where it wasn't just overvalued, but the patent protection rolling off is seriously going to creep into margins and sales. It's going to be a very big competitive issue. And uh, to me, that's much more Plus fraud and deceit. (laughs) Accused, accused. Um, But yeah, to that point, you know, he definitely tore into Green Mountain's, um, you know, financials. And again, this time around, he had some very stinging remarks about Green Mountain. He still shorted it and laid out an example where he thinks that they make about eight cents in earnings before interest and taxes on each K-cup they sell, and that by his estimates, they recently cut prices on K-cups by eight cents. Well, 
do the math on that, and suddenly this razor razor blade model doesn't be work doesn't seem to be working very well. Uh, Brian, I think it's worth pointing out that Tuesday afternoon, which is when Einhorn was making his short case for Chipotle, shares of Chipotle dropped five percent. So um, that's all. <laughs> clearly, yeah, yeah. Usually, he gets a twenty percent move. Um, yeah, I think the interesting part about his case was that uh, it, it was focused on a survey that his firm Greenlight Capital did of several thousand people to uncover what Joe was saying about uh, how the market probably misunderstands who Chipotle's customers are exactly. Um, the market thinks that they're much more like the Panera-going, Starbucks-going customers when, in fact, they're more likely to eat at places like Taco Bell and McDonald's. And so now that there is uh, another viable alternative in, in, you know, in, in this type of cuisine, um, you can argue whether or not the Cantina Bell menu is a viable competitor. But uh, his point was because, uh, because Chipotle is priced for perfection, it doesn't take much of a customer defection to cause a company to miss earnings. And when uh, the, a company that is priced for perfection misses earnings, bad things happen. So, interesting case, but not nearly as compelling as the Green Mountain case a year ago. Agreed. He or, actually, or, yeah. or the Green Mountain case today. Yeah. Yeah. He, actually, he actually started off uh, the Chipotle uh, pitch by saying that, hey, this is, a, this is a good business. This is a great restaurant concept. They have done really, really well with it. So, uh, he sort of, you know... He hedged himself at the beginning, uh, and you know made made his pitch a little less compelling by saying that up front. Yeah, honestly, it just seems like there are easier ways to make money than this one. Um, speaking of which, Joe, he also talked about another company that's near and dear to your heart, and that's General Motors. The General, which uh, which he referred to as uh, an ugly duckling. Uh, in terms of the world of stock investing, what did you make of his case? Did it make you feel better? Because uh, it seems like over, over the last couple of months in particular, even though you are still behind General Motors, you've seemed a little bit more um, defeated, for lack of a better word. <laughs> um, did, did his bullish case for General Motors, what did that do for you personally? Well, it was some nice confirmation bias, and it's always great to have an articulate smart, respected investor get up and make a case for a stock you love to a crowd full of people who run a lot of money. Uh, you know, in the case of GM, essentially his case was the same one that I outlined two years ago. Problem is, we were just way too early on GM at IV, and I think the lesson there is that, and this came up during uh, Lloyd Connor's great presentation on turnarounds, sometimes you should just wait a little bit and let the turn start happening uh, before you get in there. And, you know, in GM's case, it's still still very cheap, uh, still dirty value. I like it. I own a bunch of it and the warrants, and it's still a wreck at IV, and we like it. But, you know, it's definitely been a disappointing ride so far. Yeah, to Joe's credit, uh, I don't think that Einhorn uh, added anything to to Joe's uh, argument, uh, even if he did make it two years ago. Um, but there were sort of two big parts that I hung on in his argument. Uh, he was placing a lot of weight on the success of the recent Cadillac ATS launch as sort of a uh, forerunner of things to come, of, of how great the product refresh is going to be. Um, and... To me, that's a that's a, a tenuous assumption to make. I mean, that's one that's one product. Um, they've got a lot of new models coming out. I don't know if I want to place so much weight on that. And the other thing that he said was, uh, there's also a lot riding on the 2013 2014 release of the new truck lines. And you know, for these for for 
both GM and Ford, uh, the truck sales are an enormous part of their sales. And so uh, that's something that they need to get right. Uh, before we wrap up on the Value Investing Congress, uh, Bill Ackman was also one of the speakers. Um, what is he like in person? I've only seen the guy on CNBC. A total boss. <laughs> <laughs> He's intense. Is he? I mean, impressive because Brian, when you and I were talking earlier, one of the things you said was that this. It's there were some people who presented that you thought, um, you know what? These these people aren't necessarily smarter than anyone I work with here at the Motley Fool. But then there's Bill Ackman. And then there's Bill Ackman. Yeah, I mean, the, the most impressive thing about about Ackman is it is incredibly clear that he can consume more information in apparently the same 24 hours every day that I'm given uh, than, than, most, than most people. Uh, I don't know how he does it. Uh, I don't know how he retains it all and can, can draw on it all. Is he uh, one of those people who only needs like four hours of sleep a night? Because i got to say, I hate those people. It, it, I think it has to be, honestly. Yeah. I think he's a robot. I don't <laughs> think you consume that much information and that great a hair without being some sound. Uh, I don't want to presume that you guys spent all of your time in New York City just focused entirely on the Value Investing Congress. So for our listeners out there, give me one tip, one recommendation, just one little bit of local color for the next time someone's in New York City. Joe? Upright Citizens Brigade Theater at UCB. It's an improv theater there. Uh, it's the home of a lot of great comics who have gone on to bigger things, including Amy Poehler. Great shows there every night of the week. Very funny, very cheap. Brian? Yeah. Uh, get out of Times Square. Uh, <laughs> yeah. Uh, I think a, gra- a great thing to do is you can actually hire a uh, photo guide, uh, basically a guide to take you around to uh, you know, the New York sites as the New Yorkers live them. They'll photograph your trip as you go, uh, and it's sort of a great way to see New York on foot uh, and get out of you know, all of the hoopla. So you didn't seeing the naked cowboy in Times Square, that, seeing that once, that was enough for you? I did see the cowboy, actually. <laughs> He's pretty tall. Been there, done that. <laughs> You can always email us, radio at fool.com is our email address. Uh, and I've said before, uh, we get tons of great emails. We get tons of great comments on Twitter as well, but tons of great emails. And, and I think our favorite thing is when people share how they consume the podcast, You know, whether it's on their commute or walking their dog or whatever. We got an email from uh, a listener, Thomas Bird, who happens to be a police officer who listens to Market Foolery while on patrol. He writes, it's much more educational than the radio, but just the other day, at one minute, I was listening to you discuss the new Apple iPhone 5 sales volumes, and a minute later, I was fully engaged in a street brawl. I paused the podcast, handled some craziness, and returned to the podcast. But how hilarious would it be to get arrested That's and pretty awesome. get some good financial advice on the way to jail? What a nice cop. Even though he arrested me, he had some really strong advice on how to diversify my portfolio. So I love that. That's just one more thing to add to the, the commuters and the dog walkers. And, hey, Thomas Bird, he's, he's keeping our, our streets safe yeah. and dispensing a little financial uh, wisdom along the Lots way. Lots of respect for Thomas Bird. Uh, we are still looking for interns for the summer of 2013. You can find more information at our blog uh, online, which is just culture.fool.com. So if you are a college student or if you know a college student uh, interested in interning at The Motley Fool next summer, check out the information at culture.fool.com and apply. Brian Hinman, Joe Mager. Guys, thanks for being here. Cheers. As always, people on the program may have interest in the stocks they talk about, and The Motley Fool may have formal recommendations for or against. So don't buy or sell stocks based solely on what you hear. That's it for this edition of Market Foolery. Our producer is Matt Greer. I'm Chris Hill. Thanks for listening. We'll see you on Monday.